Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech podcast and this episode of the VocTech podcast Learning Continued which is brought to you in collaboration with UFI VocTech Trust. In this week's episode we are looking at skills development in the gig economy, flexible and freelance space. Whilst there is huge opportunity to do better on supporting long-term learning as our world of work changes, there are also legal terms which are slowing innovation in some cases. We get into what all of this means and what our guests would like to see more of. But before all of that, how are you? And two dates for your diary. Who wants to join us for a live podcast with Multiverse, Mobilize and Game Academy talking about how to support diverse learner communities from apprentices, gamers with transferable skills to unpaid carers who are learning peer-to-peer? Do it! Wednesday the 19th of November, 9am on the dot and you can send questions in. Check out weekofvoctech.co.uk forward slash events and if you're already furiously beavering away by 9am or if you're yet to get out of bed at 9am, don't worry, you can always listen back via the EdTech podcast. Before that, next week I'll be at EdTech Next, interviewing the learning and development leads of a bunch of big companies including Continental and Siemens. If you haven't checked out the programme yet, do go and do so at edtechnext-summit.com and I'll aim to bring some recordings back with me and hope to see some of you there. Okay, on with this week's episode. Wonderful. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited and delighted that we've got um, an amazing group together for this uh, latest podcast episode. And we're going to be talking about skills development within the gig economy and freelance space. Um, Just in terms of a bit of context, um, according to the UK government, the gig economy involves the exchange of labour for money between individuals or companies via digital platforms that actively facilitate matching between providers and customers on a short term and payment by task basis. Um, So examples that you may uh, all be familiar with as listeners um, include taxi hailing apps, food delivery apps and holiday rental apps. Um, But for the context of this recording, we are looking into what this means for the long term development of gig or freelance workers. Um, And in terms of scale, McKinsey estimates that up to 162 million people in Europe and the United States or 20 to 30 percent of the working age population engage in some form of independent work. So um, I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Christina Palmu, formerly of the Tony Blair Institute, uh, which was set up to help make globalisation work for the many and not the few. Um, Helen Gironi from UFI Ventures, the UK's specialist investor in edtech for adults. And Sophie Smallwood from Rollshare, uh, which helps people keep up with work and life healthily. Um, perhaps we could kick off just really with like a one minute uh, personal intro from each of you on who you are and what you do in your own words as well. So, um, Helen, do you want to go first? Thanks, Sophie. So, uh, I'm Helen Gironi, I'm Director of Ventures at UFI. Um, UFI basically supports people into uh, learning and uh, supports people to find the right jobs and progress uh, within work. And we do that in a number of ways. Uh, We have a grant making program 
and we have an investment fund, a £10 million investment fund making pre-seed and seed uh, stage investments. And we've invested in nine portfolio businesses to date. Um, I've Personally, I've got a background um, investing in early stage businesses. I've been investing in this space since about 2002 and I've invested in uh, many sectors. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Sophie, how about yourself? Hey, Sophie. Yeah, so I am the co-founder and co-CEO of Rollshare. And what Rollshare is, is a platform that enables companies to retain employees who are approaching transition points in life, be it uh, working parents, people going back to school to be um, MBA students, semi-retirees, who don't want the full-time career anymore, but have the same aspirations. And it's in a way, it's a way for them to keep those employees at the same band level, but by matching them together to share the role. So in essence, we are helping companies scale job sharing and trying to normalize it. And equally, we have our own community of fractional workers at all those various transition points who want to work this way. So we can match employees together, but also we can match employees with external talent and bring them into the organization. So that's role share in a nutshell. Fantastic. Thank you. And finally, Christina. So I am an economist uh, doing work on income inequality, welfare reform, and the future of work. Um, the work I'm going to speak to today is work um, done with Jigar Kakad and others from the Tony Blair Institute on how remote working is going to reshape the geography of um, work in the UK. It's a paper called Any Jobs. Um, and also what should sort of worker representation and a system of worker rights look like um, so that it includes and empowers flexible workers and gig workers as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good um, segue into my first question, which is, is there a perceived difference between gig economy, freelance and consultant or contract works? I was really interested to know from all of you what you think about the difference between those terms and, and how it relates to sort of perhaps choice and necessity and, yeah, and what you've seen in your own work. I can jump in as far as the way we see it at role share. So typically with role share and job sharing, we're actually helping people be employees of the organization, but on a part-time basis. And the way we see this as, as different from gig or contract is that these are employees who really belong to the organization. They have access, full access, equal access to all the information that a company would make available to their full-time employees. And they really are part of the team. And I think one of the challenges that we have heard when we've interviewed people who are working freelance or gig or contract is this feeling of having to work much harder to be successful, digging for information, because information just isn't as accessible. And also the constant having to sort of look for new projects, which obviously creates a certain sense of, um, you know, uh, instability and uh, dissonance, if you will. And these are one of the big differences that we see when we look at gig contract versus, you know, part-time employees in the form of a job share. That's really interesting. And, and Helen, what's your sort of investment thesis in this space? And what would you like to see more of that you see is currently lacking from the market, I suppose? Thanks, Sophie. Yes, I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, freelance platforms that have come to the market in the past sort of two or three years um, and have managed to get funding. These are platforms that are um, enabling freelancers to find really relevant, um, quite high quality work generally. Um, What we're not seeing so much of is um, gig economy uh, platforms 
that really are tailored to um, the the needs. Uh, for example, the the upskilling and uh, talent uh, training. So there's lots of platforms that are doing that aforementioned matching, but the but the kind of long term piece around how do you develop that community isn't necessarily integrated into those platforms at the moment. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. So the focus of um, gig economy platforms, in in my experience at the moment, is on um, effective matching and uh, cost minimization um, of the workforce. And there's there's so much more, um, I think, that it could become. So, you know, feeding in um, uh, the smoothing of um, irregular pay, for example, uh, the insurance, and and the big piece here, uh, talent acquisition or other skills acquisition. Um, and enabling um, gig economy workers to progress in their careers um, and acquire the skills that people do when they are in full-time employment or permanent employment. And, and, and Sophie, just to put this into context, um, that's kind of one of the reasons we, um, when we put this episode together, we were looking for interesting startups. You know, there's there's lots of platforms geared towards the employer and employer needs and employer benefits. And role share kind of stood out because you know you position much more around the job share employee um but I was just really interested to hear in your roadmap do you do you kind of also think about the long-term development of of the people within your community how do you kind of see that piece working out so when you think about learning and the learning loop right one of the most effective ways for people to go through the entire learning loop is through peer-to-peer learning. And when people are job sharing, they're actually going through that learning loop extremely organically and naturally. And when you're matching people to work together in a job share arrangement, and obviously today it's two people, but who knows what the future will hold, ultimately that knowledge transfer is happening naturally, organically. And people have a tendency of after searching on Google to find an answer, the next best thing is asking someone they trust. And when you're in a job share arrangement, the person you trust most is your partner. But equally, when you're putting people together in peer-to-peer sharing arrangements, you're not putting like for like together. People are bringing different skills to the table, different experiences, different points of view. And because there's a shared objective and mutual accountability, you're much more likely to really hear and listen what the other person has to say. Um, That's one of the challenges when we see people working in silos in their own roles and you've got your your goal, your objective, you're going to work, you're going to work alongside a team, but you're still in a bit of that, you know, individual contributor mindset. Yeah, definitely. Um, And then Christina, we had a really interesting chat yesterday to prepare for this recording. And I just wondered what your take was on this move towards a greater gig or or freelance economy and whether there's a risk of sort of skills attrition and how that might be mitigated as well. But what did you see in in the two papers that you worked on? Um, There's a lot of themes that come out, you know, from a policy perspective, when you look at the data, there's a lot of themes that come out that both Helen and Sophie have picked up on. Um, in particular, sort of the information just isn't accessible. So one of the themes that came out um, that we used to categorize agency in the work representation paper was how the power dynamics really differ between gig workers and potentially other flexible workers um, because of this three-party structure that in- involves who pays for the work, who does the work, and then who commissions the work. And then the sort of 
potentially lack of transparency sometimes on how that third party, more so in gig platforms than, you know, if that was like a physical agency, how does that affect how you access the work and potentially your your relationship with, with the employer? Um, and we sort of discussed, you know, when it comes to skill, again, going back to something that Sophie said, how there's there's like three levels of what really, you know, what do we mean when we talk about skill? There's, you know, your degree education. And in our work, we don't really find that there's significant differences in the share of degree educated individuals that do flexible work and those that don't. This is where we find a lot more gig workers and atypical workers, you know, doing training that's more forward looking. So when you ask them, you know, why have you why have you done this training? A lot more say it's because I want to be prepared for the work I want to do in the future. Um, and the third bit that's really missing that, you know, came out in our work. And I think Sophie um, rightly pointed it out as well, is the sort of learning that you do through relationship building and and tenure and I think there's a little bit of that um, that might come through the more companies adapt to how they can use gig economy better and you know at its very beginning platforms like Upwork you know a lot of companies would commission very very minor sort of in the periphery tasks like data collection or you know table building um, but I think more companies to the potential, I guess, of, of more flexible work, better work and work that allows potentially repeated interaction or more skills acquisition because you're doing more complex tasks um, will become possible and, and available. There is some evidence on um, the solo self-employed and small driver of, of lesser productivity in the UK in the last few years. So I guess not addressing that and having the gig economy prolif- proliferate poses that sort of productivity risk. I'd love to jump in on a sort of power dynamic um, issue that Christina was just um, talking about. And we're seeing um, particularly very recently a number of platforms bring in the idea of um, workers being able to feedback and rate um, the employers that they've worked for. And I think this is absolutely game changing if they if they manage to build in this function functionality to their job boards. Um, just providing that element of transparency and a voice, essentially. And, you know, some feedback could be very empowering. I'd, I'd like to have some training. I enjoyed the work, but this training would really help me. That kind of thing, I, I think, is a real game changer. But whether employers will want to be on those platforms that provide that transparency, I think will be quite polarizing. Some will, the best will, and obviously some some may not be so willing. Yeah, and, and I'd love to add to that just really quickly. So if you think about it, one of the challenges there is from a company perspective, you have IP considerations, confidentiality considerations, and then also long-term ownership. So if a project is delivered and then you find that there's problems along the way, who, who where, where's the ownership? And, and those are concerns, right? When you're an employer, I think about that as a startup founder, we have worked with gig economy workers. And I think there's something around... Um, confidence in the commitment and the quality of work that will be delivered. And today it just isn't at the same level of your own employees because they're just not necessarily still, um, you know, that, that long-term commitment is there. So, so there's an opportunity there, but it's certainly still very much a, a real challenge. Yeah, definitely. So we've got here, which startups or platforms are recognising this as part of their offer? So we've talked a little bit about um, some of the experiences out there, but are there any particular 
companies or individuals that are sort of leading a, a sort of different way of thinking about this um, area of work? I'd love to jump in there. We, you know, we're seeing a few um, and they really stand out. Um, so, for example, Intru is a, a jobs board. Um, they don't charge uh, the individual at all. So they just they charge the companies. And I think that's uh, you know quite different to, to the way most uh, businesses job boards operate. Uh, we've seen an organization uh, recently called Slinger that's providing the feedback that I was uh, talking about before. Um, and a company called WorkWise in the US that is providing training, medical insurance, uh, good payment terms and support, and, and really seems to be um, providing a, a more sort of comprehensive set of product that, that is aimed at the individual rather than the company. Uh, ASCO is an organization. It's a, it's a, a website uh, for tradeswomen to find work. Um, and they have a, a meals element that they're, they're building into that. Uh, so all really encouraging. A lot of these companies are very early stage. So um, we're, we're keen to sort of get involved and, and nurture that way of thinking. But there are some more um, developed and mature businesses such as uh, WorkWise and Job and Talent that are really well funded and really operating at scale. When we're doing the worker representation work, we had so many amazing conversations with sort of modern unions and how they're trying to bring people together to, to create these peer relationships and all the obstacles that potentially are embedded in, in the current models of work representation um, to, to nod to one that Sophie sort of alluded to earlier regarding the trust that you have on individuals that are not necessarily attached to your organization because the current setup, you know, post Thatcher, the current setup of worker agency and rights are mostly based on legal arrangements rather than one to one arrangements with with an employer um, or collective bargaining or other structures that have. I mean, at the moment, especially in Scandinavian countries. Um, and as a result, I guess you you there there is a limit to the things that an employer and and the uber um case is a good example of of that there's there's a limited things that you can because that that structure of what you're entitled to from the law is based on how much control is being exercised from the platform on the person that is working this adds a haziness and and, and a risk to business because it's not clear what constitutes as control um, how much can be asked, um, how much can be asked before the worker can be classified as an employee and then the set of obligations changes completely for, for both parties. So there's a lot of uh, sort of modern unions out there that are trying to bridge that gap by getting, I guess, self-employed and businesses to to talk more and the self-employed to discuss with each other the work that they're doing in, in such a decentralised way to build those relationships I guess to, to get to get around that hmm. um, but, and so some of those fall under the sort of worker tech banner with do they exactly. yeah, yeah. And, and we talked yesterday a little bit about you thought that the art sector was sometimes a little bit ahead in terms of how they're tackling some of these things or yeah I feel the the art sector is is ahead in that respect uh precisely because they're 
this decentralized models of work uh, have been there for much longer, even for organizations as big as the BBC, you know, the, it, a lot of the work is project-based and you come to work on a particular thing to be produced um, and then you sort of, that ends and you move on to the next project. And it, potentially the fact that, you know, an arts work is inherently unique is also, you know, plays, plays at, at the hands of the industry in it being easier to, no, there's there's more transparency, I guess, and there's more when you're working in the gig economy. A lot of the times, the tasks that you give are very homogeneous. So, who is going to do the data collection and who's going to do a given table? It doesn't matter if it's going to be Sophie or Christina. But you know, in the arts industry, you want the work of a particular artist to do that particular work. Um, so that heterogeneity helps helps as well. But also, yeah, they've had a lot longer to to work at it. And Christina has a really interesting point there around the arts. There's a co- actually a company in the U.S. They're very well funded. Uh, they're called A Team, and they were uh, the CEO when he was announcing the the raise. Sort of the story behind it is, and the inspiration is, you know, production teams. When a company in LA is producing a movie, there's a producer, and the producer has um, her his sort of go to people right yeah. that they work together and so that's sort of the concept behind the a team which i thought was interesting and thanks christina for um for what you said because it certainly reminded me of that yeah it's taking me back to my old tv production days amazing right what does the research show us in this area about risks and opportunities for a shift towards gig and freelance work and i suppose the follow up to that is you know quite often and it's not always the case but when people think about gig they can think about young people so are young people worrying about those risks and that sort of attrition of skills over time or any insights that you can share with our listeners on kind of how this uh, space is shaping up would be amazing. I think one of the risks of um, shifting uh, more people into this this economy space um, is talent and, and really where the training happens that is currently happening um, in full-time permanent job positions. There is less training that happens um, in freelance in the gig economy, and and I think really need to think about ways to make sure that that's structured within um, the gig economy and, and freelance work uh, made available to people um, in this sector. People learn on their own time. Uh, do, do young people have the resources to be able to put their own money into um, developing their career by investing in in learning a lot won't and also probably this is something that's curated for them if they work for an employer the employer um, will put in front of them a, a list of, of sort of training opportunities and uh, you're embarking on your career maybe you don't know what's available maybe you you need that curation one thing that's really interesting when you look at statistics around you know the future of work obviously we know that there's a generational squeeze, right? So on one side, there's an exodus of really talented knowledge workers who are approaching semi-retirement and companies are thinking, my goodness, how am I going to retain this knowledge? How do I transfer this knowledge? And then on the flip side, people haven't been having as many children as, you know, as, as usual for many years. And as a result, the skills that we need um, for the modern workforce outnumber the skilled workers, right? And as we were saying, people aren't getting the skills fast enough. Like the the half-life of skills today is much shorter than ever. And so companies are now faced with this dilemma of 
okay, how do I continue to train fast, quickly? How do I transfer knowledge? And so, of course, I'm going to do a shameless plug here, but sharing roles is definitely one way to do that. But also, interestingly, um, when people come together to share work, there's a 30% increase in productivity. And there's also an 11% increase in well-being. And this is across generations, right? Like from Gen Z all the way to boomers, because there's something about having a best friend at work. And there's tons of research around this subject as well. It gives you more confidence. It's empowering. And those things are very true when people are, are coming together to, to share jobs. But I think the, the real opportunity here is around um, activating underrepresented groups oftentimes for those typically full-time positions. And this is something that the gig economy can really help to, to supplement, right? There's so many qualified people out there who aren't applying for those full-time positions today simply because they don't fit that full-time mold. So if there's a way to actually activate that talent and truly immerse them within the company culture, empower them to do their best work, whether it's on a fractional basis together or full-time, there's plenty of opportunities to make that happen. Companies just really need to be open-minded and more agile. You know, the way of the past is in the past. The question is, are we, are you, are you going, there's two choices. One, are you going to move forward and be part of the future of work? Or are you going to sit back on your sofa and watch, watch it from the past? <laughs> really? That's sort of the question. I love that. And, um, Christina, I'm laughing because, um, we had a really funny chat yesterday, which was like, you know, we're sort of saying, oh, there's this really bad problem about gig economy workers and they won't get all the skills because, you know, they're just doing these little slices of work. And then we were reflecting, you know, it's not like the employed experience was that great. Like one of the number one reasons people leave their jobs is because they don't feel like they're getting the development that they need. And employers haven't traditionally on a broad scale been brilliant at um, upskilling uh, their workforce either so Christina you you pick up from there because you know you were sort of talking about how this is part of a bigger problem as well it's not just the gig economy yeah uh, exactly I mean um, you know the problem with training is is that it, you know you'd rather someone else trained your worker for you you just hire them ready and trained and, and good to go and you wouldn't have to pay the training costs and you see that I mean you see that a lot in, in the traditional labor market as well you know organizations that pay for masters and stuff require longer commitments from the workers to stay for another two years or three years um but you also see that in the statistics on training between atypical workers and uh, traditional workers atypical workers are one and a half times less likely to receive training from an employer um and yes there's an element of this that is sort of skills composition and what what sort of tasks traditional workers do versus what sort of tasks are commissioned from from sort of more flexible workers but there's also a, a disorientation almost of what do we actually want from from flexible workers that are going to come and go if we are to train them what are we training them for are we going to see the benefit of that training are we going to have sufficient repeated interactions later to to see the benefit of the sort of resources that we're going to put in it and i think you know that falls within, as we discussed yesterday, within a wider debate about adult skills in the UK and a sort of void in policy when it comes to adult skills in the UK and what happens to people that don't go to university and take on a traditional job and sort of continue on in the, the boxed traditional path and decide to do something more flexible. What what happens? And you, and you don't really see the policy offering on adult skills is not as good as in other European countries like Germany. Um, you see that 
from the fact that, you know, it was in the political manifestos in the last election. It is it is an issue that people are thinking about. But you also see that in sort of wage growth of people that didn't go to university and wage growth of people that didn't go to university in the UK has been pretty much stagnant precisely because of that. There isn't enough infrastructure for adult skills development in the UK. Um, and I want to add to, to that and to what Sophie said on sort of companies need to get on board and learn how to activate that talent. 100% one of the opportunities of flexible work in the gig economy is that it can tap into inactivity. And this is a huge deal right now for a lot of developed economies, particularly in the UK, um, with loads of older workers retiring early after after COVID and you know, people suggesting that with migrant workers leaving after Brexit and with COVID as well, there isn't actually that much slack in the labor market. And I feel in the UK, while this is a big opportunity to tap into inactivity, because of the large backbone of SMEs that, you know, UK business is comprised of, it's almost as if there isn't sufficient mental bandwidth in 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 a small medium enterprise to deal with the uncertainty of Brexit, deal with the uncertainty of post-COVID recovery, and also get on board with investing and being forward-looking and strategic about how you're going to tap into this, you know, immense opportunity of flexible work. So it's a great it's a great problem for some innovative company to tackle then. <laughs> and I and I think it's something that resonates with um, you know, HR departments in in larger organizations and medium organizations widening the, the talent the funnel of talent um and um you know that's that's hugely widened if you take on uh, temporary workers and and train them up amazing so i've got two questions so one is we've talked a lot about you know the challenges so the first question is what would you love to see develop what would be you know in in two years time if it could look like x what would be your your perfect world um, in this space? And then the second one is again any opportunity to shout about any resources, projects, people, books, podcasts, stuff in this area that you've found really uh, influential that you'd love to share with our audience just to kind of uh, leave this episode with. Um, so what I would love to see, sort of fast forwarding a couple of years, is signposting of training opportunities that are relevant and affordable uh, to people working in this sector um, and I think you know bu- budgets of individuals vary um, but it's not just down to budgets it's about um, people not understanding where training is and how how they can tap into it um, so I think that that will be a, a massive shift. That really, that really reminds me of um, James Plunkett, the author of End State, and he was talking exactly about that. How do you how do you make it feasible for someone to see the the pathway if they're especially if they're in a sort of um, low low paid but not necessarily low value role? Um, yeah, and so it's not this kind of big clunky experience that feels really onerous. So uh, yeah, definitely think that's a good one. And I think that will feed into a perception of the attractiveness of of working in this sector, how, you know, you can build um, great sort of skills development by working in lots of different positions um, throughout your career um, and having that diversity of of influence, essentially, as you're building your career. Um, And then, you know, public perception is that this is a more attractive way to do work. There's, there's a lot of um, 
information out there about, uh, I guess, uh, businesses um, that we have uh, funded. We've got uh, some resources on our website uh, about areas, uh, businesses um, in this area. Uh, so I'd like to invite people to um, look at ufi.co.uk. Um, on the vision, I think, you know, I would like to see more infrastructure for flexible work to work. It's almost as if, you know, uh, uh, we need a, an Employment Rights Act, Vol 3, that, you know, if, if the previous one sort of equalised the rights of part-time workers with full-time workers, now we have this third category that almost needs to make flexible work not equal precarity, but equal literally what it's meant to be, more flexible ways of working. And for that, you know, for that to work, it's not just about addressing questions of what do we do with data, um, what access individuals have, um, how much power uh, platforms have, um, what should the offering be. And you see that even though in skills, maybe we're a little bit um, behind more, there's, there's more of... Um, increasing the offering on sort of pensions and holiday pay and sick pay and all these issues that we discussed uh, a lot in COVID that traditional workers just some of them at least um, take more for granted Um, and on that to make flexible work work you need to also make it easier to engage in these flexible arrangements without your whole life being appended sometimes so the childcare offering and other things that come with working needs to be better in the UK you know infrastructure around what it actually takes for me to sit at my desk in the morning and start work you know needs to become more resilient it can't be that if I want to um you know put my child in childcare, I need a full-time job because childcare is at least a thousand thousand five hundred pounds a month so it's very difficult for me to tap into those mm-hmm. labor markets more fully because it's you know the, the commitments are much larger for things that are basic like childcare. Um, of course, I'm going to give a shout, shout out to the people doing this work at uh, TBI, um, both in the tech team and the Renewing the Center. Um, in terms of outside of TBI, though, uh, Sarah Connor, of course, is amazing for writing about these issues, writing about the future of work, you know, um, looking into worker experience and what are the structures within gig economy uh, that could change. Um, and I'm going to say Hilary Cottam as well, um, her work on how can we look at peer relationships um, and what can we learn and how can we sort of create more resilience in communities through peer relationships embedded in how we deliver public services, skills being one of them and some of her work actually is about skills and young people. Um, and there are a lot of ventures that she draws from in year here that unfortunately uh closed this year was one of them, one of these social ventures that looked into tapping into these peer relationships to, you know, address skills development, address an activity. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, these are, these are, yeah. Amazing. Amazing list. Thank you. And then finally, Sophie. Yeah, sure. So I think what I would love to see, and this is very much our vision and mission, very aligned within work Facebook is, We want to see a sustainable, diverse, and equitable workforce through shared work, ultimately. And I think the best way I can describe this is just by sharing a story. When we first started, we ran an experiment with 
a organization in the Netherlands who was HQ'd out of the Netherlands, but they were doing the work in South Africa. And they specifically came to us because they wanted to hire a job share in senior leadership role, which in the past was lacking in accountability. It was very much working in a vacuum and there is a lack of empathy. So they specifically said, we want this role to be a job share. Can you help us? And um, after working with them, what we ended up doing is what I would love to see a million times over in the future. But the role today is an associate director role. And it's uh, being shared by um, a middle-aged white man in the Netherlands who is seeking flexibility with a Black woman in South Africa and Johannesburg specifically. And the two of them have mutual accountability. They share the goals, the objectives of the role. They're literally acting uh, locally and thinking globally together. And what's incredible is that for the woman who's in South Africa, she has now had access to a senior leadership role in an organization that she was a part of for many years, where typically these types of roles were only available out of HQ. And the ability to actually make the world smaller and more empathetic through work is the future of work that I would love to see come true. And that example is one I'd love to see a million times over. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, so Helen, um, Let's just have a quick look at this. So this is a report as well um, for anyone listening. Uh, the Blueprint for Good Work by the RSA is also a good one to delve into a bit more. Um, well, we've been incredibly efficient. I think we've got one minute left. So it just uh, leaves me to say thank you so much to everyone for taking the time out this Friday morning to uh, share your thoughts on this subject and uh, yeah, look forward to sharing this all with, uh, with our listeners and thank you once again. That's all for this week. A big thank you to Helen, Sophie and Christina for their amazing additions and insights and to UFI Voxtech Trust for this week's episode. As always, all the show notes are available at ufi.co.uk and the edtechpodcast.com. We've got some great episodes coming up on the podcast, including some really exciting series announcements. So do stay tuned and have a great week. Bye bye.